Welcome back to the Practical Theism Podcast, where faith and culture collide. My name is Josh Smith, and I'm here today with Chris Bray. Chris is a full-time traveling Catholic speaker and musician. He's received multiple Gospel Music Association Covenant Awards and numerous number one hit songs on Christian radio in Canada. And his ministry has now expanded into North America with from headlining the National March for Life Rally on Parliament Hill for 25,000 people to Air Canada Centre, working with great figures like Matt Maher, um, Matt Fradd, Jackie Francois, Lee Adaro, Paul J. Kim, and many others, many that, quite honestly, I've followed as well and have meant a lot to me on my journey. So he's been uh, involved in Life Teen, World Youth Day, National Catholic Youth Conference, featured on EWTN, Salt and Light TV, and other productions, presenting to tens of thousands every year at hundreds of con- conferences, retreats, schools, and churches. So not only that, he's a loving father and husband to his large growing family, and uh, he's real fun to follow on social media. So I couldn't be happier to chat with Chris today. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Oh, thanks, Josh. I'm excited to chat with you today. Yeah, this is quite the uh, quite the introduction there for you. you got kind of. I, I remember <laughs> I was curating your bio, and I was like, I gotta pare it down. There's so much that you've done over oh, the past uh, past number of years, probably greater than a decade here. So, um, the for a- anything you want to kind of add to that, I don't know. Just because uh, I know you got a YouTube channel too, where you talk about Catholic things, right? And kind of an yeah. own apologetics in your way. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, with my journey, um, I, I started in ministry, actually more so in the Protestant world, uh, with Christian radio and and being invited, uh, you know, having songs on the radio, being invited to these Protestant churches, uh, which later they found out I was a Catholic, and then they'd have all these <laughs> questions for me. And, and so I started a YouTube channel called All That Catholic Stuff as a way to answer the questions that, like, people would be asking me questions like, why do you worship Mary? And, you know, mm. where's purgatory in the Bible? And, like, all these different things, misconceptions about the faith that I knew weren't right, but I had no idea how to defend. And yeah. um, and so for me, it was a learning opportunity. And what I was learning, I wanted to just share with people. Like, even, like, friends. Like, I just wanted to put a video out just to say, like, hey, look, guys, like, we don't actually worship Mary. Like, <laughs> like let me show you. Like, I just, I learned this myself. And so um, yeah. it started with that, and it's kind of grown I love it. Well, today we're going to talk about something that's interesting in the Protestant and Catholic dialogue, something, you know, we're a couple years removed from the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, so, and it still seems like this is an ongoing conversation. You've mentioned, um, you know, misconceptions that people have about what Catholics believe. I've seen very similar, if not the same, misconceptions out there, um, and that's been kind of instrumental in my journey. So, from your perspective— Looking at the Protestant Catholic dialogue as it exists today, what's missing from it that renders it seemingly ineffective in your experience? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with we're starting at different starting points. Mm. Um, like I, I think interpretation of Scripture is uh, is a huge issue. And a lot of times we waste so much time in dialogue, you know, verse slinging or, or debating over, well, what does this verse actually mean? And that's really important stuff. Um, but I think we, we kind of miss the point in all of that. It's like, well, we're not actually arguing from the same platforms. Like, we, yeah. you know, we're, we're using different resources and different things to try and prove our, our uh, position and our, our point of view. And I think we waste a lot of time doing that. I mean, the other, the other thing, too, to, to acknowledge is, 
um, and especially if anybody's watched any debates online on mm-hmm. YouTube or whatever, Catholic Protestant debates, is they're not always the most charitable interactions. <laughs> um, yeah. Which is frustrating to watch because they often like they'll attack the person or, um, you know, like, you know, even the even the arguments that I've received, I, I continually on my channel still get people commenting uh, just like, oh, you worship Mary, you're, you know, you're the whore of Babylon and like all of this hostile language. Like, that, that doesn't help anything. Yeah. Um, and no, nobody's learning anything from this. And so I think we just we waste a lot of time in that. Yeah. I don't know what you found, Josh. Yeah, you. no, definitely. I, I see the same thing on a lot of the channels. I put out a video uh, a, a short time ago. It was... Um, from my understanding and my experience, reasons why Protestants don't become Catholic. And it, hmm. I don't know how it got picked up, but it got picked up somehow and just started blowing up. And the, the list of comments, the litany of just objections and anger yeah. and hostility that rests there, it, uh, it's kind of mind-boggling. And I always say, I tell people, quite honestly, if I'm engaging with them in topics of the faith, I say, you know, the worst argument against Christianity, quite honestly, sometimes is Christians themselves, just because <laughs> yes. they're not really representing the love that they supposedly profess. And oh, uh, so it's a big yeah, miss. It's, it's a big miss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going back 500 years, right, to the Reformation, one of the basic tenets of the Reformation was this idea of sola scriptura. Now, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a huge fan of other people necessarily interpreting what they don't necessarily hold. So as best as you can, putting your Protestant hat on, right, um, simply put, what is it um, as defined by it? Because there's a lot of different, um, right. I think, interpretations out there about what sola scriptura is. And uh, yeah. why is it problematic for you? Yeah, and I, th- I mean, it's great of you to acknowledge that because there are a variety of understandings as to what it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you ask various different uh, sects of Protestantism, um, you'll get a whole bunch of different answers. But I, I think one way of describing it would be that the, the scriptures, the Bible alone, would be their sole rule of faith and morals, mm-hmm. that it, or that it is the highest authority yeah. um, in, in, those, in those things, in matters of faith. And, um, and I think when people argue these things, maybe we're, like, it, it's, there's nothing worse than arguing a straw man argument. And I yeah. think Catholics and Protestants, we do this on both sides. It's like, we'll, we'll kind of like invent a flaw in an argument that wasn't actually there to begin with. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, when we're talking about Sola Scriptura, like, I kind of wish, like, if that's actually what the teaching is, is to go by the Bible alone, like, I kind of wish Christians would do that a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? In a certain sense, like, yeah. I think we could all benefit from actually trying to be faithful to the words of Scripture. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's at odds with what the Catholic Church teaches. We we uphold Scripture. Um, and then, you know, and you and I can probably talk about it in a little bit, but just sort of the what the Word of God is and how the Catholic Church sure. would define that. But um, but but I, I don't know. I think that's probably a fair summarization of, of what Sola Scriptura is. Yeah. Uh, and, and we might get some varying definitions of it. Yeah. You know, I was... Uh going to an evangelical church a number of years ago. And I don't know why, I don't know if you had this experience too, but when you start asking questions, you feel like you have to go to kind of like the most educated person possible. And so you're like talking with like senior pastors. And I remember I would do that. I would go to like the senior pastors of these churches and I'm just this little nobody from Nowheresville. And I don't, (laughs) I don't know too much about theology at that point. Right. And uh, one of the books that was recommended to me on this particular topic, it was by um, a man named Keith Matheson, and uh, it was called Sola versus Solo Scriptura. Have you ever heard of it? 
I'm not sure if you, no, you come across it. No, I'm not familiar with the book. I'm, I'm heard of the, I've heard of the distinction, but not the book. No. Yeah, so it's this idea that, well, most people misinterpret sola scriptura as solo scriptura, meaning mm-hmm. me, myself, and I interpreting the Word of God separate and apart from anybody else, apart from the Church, versus a proper understanding of sola scriptura, which is in conjunction with the Church. And what I found interesting mm. to it was, you, I read some treatments on it as well, and it arrives... It's like this this proper understanding that is purported follows a very similar logic to how the Catholic Church understands Scripture in conjunction mm. and confines with the Church. But there, <laughs> there's a distinction at the very end that it lobs it and renders it it's seemingly back in this idea of solo, where basically you follow these steps, you correction, reprove by the Church, and this, that, and, and the other. But if at the end of the day your conscience still leads you to disagree with how the church is kind of, you have to follow that. You have to, Mm. like, you have to follow that interpretation, which kind of just pulls it back into this solo mindset of your ultimate authority, right? Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, right up until, like, that one important distinction is um, whose ultimate authority decides. Yeah. And for the Catholics, uh, you know, we believe that that's the magisterium. And yeah. that's the teaching office of the church. And for the non-Catholic Christians who would hold to uh, sola scriptura, it means each individual person uh, has to be the arbiter of truth. And I don't know about you, man, but that's like, that's a burden that I don't want on my shoulders. <laughs> um, I would I would totally mess it up. And so, yeah. um, but it, you know what, I, I have to be honest with you. I was chatting, I, kind of the same scenario that you were describing. Mm-hmm. I was chatting with a pastor at a conference I was uh, doing the music at. And he was speaking at it. It was a Baptist convention, and uh, we got onto the topic of sola scriptura. And I was arguing it. I was arguing it as solo scriptura that mm-hmm. uh, you claim to be going by the Bible alone. He's like, "Well, hold on. Like, we believe there are other authorities." Um, and I said, and "Like, it actually caught me off guard." And I said to him, "I said, well, that's really interesting." But I said, "How do you know which authority to use when?" Yeah. And if it and if Scripture, the scriptural authority disagrees with your interpretation of it. How do you know who's right? Like, yeah. it, it's actually, it doesn't give us any more advantage one over the other. Yeah. Um, we're still kind of back at the same spot where we we ourselves have to be the arbiter of truth. Um, and not to mention the fact that solo scriptura, solo, <laughs> is <laughs> cir- circular reasoning, yeah. right? Like, it's, it's like, why do we believe that, the Bible is inspired. It's because it tells us. And <laughs> we believe that, you know, the, the Bible tells us it's inspired. So that's why we believe it. Like it's this circle, circular yeah. arguing, um, which would have to force us to accept the Mormon writings and the Quran. Mm-hmm. And like, it just opens up this big issue, a can of worms that I don't think anyone who's thought this issue through on the, in the Protestant world has actually maybe considered the, the rationale, the logic of the argument. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think I find, you know, I always, I always joke in my snide, probably less than charitable um, statements sometimes, where it's like, well, I, I can write a paper today, and right in there it's inspired by God, and uh, right. it's the Word of God. Does that make it the Word of God? Mm-hmm. Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think, too, a lot of in a lot of my conversations with well-meaning Protestants, too, who fall into this category of the Sola Scriptura, um, they, they, they would kind of purport this that well it's god's it's it's god's word so you kind of accept it on this face value right and but even yeah. the face value with which you accept it 
um, it puts you into a bunch of confines of, of problems, right? Because all of a sudden, if you have this literalist interpretation or this straightforward historical um, focus on scripture, you miss a whole host of other genres. And you, it kind of almost, in some ways, puts God into a little bit of a box, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like, well, right. we're, we're not letting God speak to us the way that he kind of intended and we would hope that he speak to us. And what I think a lot of people don't understand too, or might not be aware of is how Catholics, like the, the amount of definitive defining statements that the Catholic Church has actually made on any particular scripture, which it seems like, I don't know, tell me about your experience with this. Does it, does it seem like most non-Catholics are looking for every verse to be like unequivocally, there's one single singular interpretation of the verse, and that's how you have to take it? Um, or is there kind of yeah. an openness to, to other paths here? Tell us a little bit about that. I've gathered that, especially from the fundamentalist communities, is yeah. that like they, they want to know that this verse means this and only this um, because they form their theology around it. And like I, I do have a high degree of respect for people that hold the position of, of what they do. You know, they a lot of them have they've adopted it probably yeah. without giving it a lot of thought. And and when you think of it kind of from the outside, the 10,000 foot view, it's like, yeah, they're, they're giving like, they're vener- like they're very honorable towards their mentality towards scripture. Like mm-hmm. in our present culture with uh, authorities abusing their power and like all the stuff that's going on, like what else could be a higher authority other than scripture? Yeah. And so I, I kind of, I can empathize with their position on it. I can mm-hmm. empathize with them wanting to, um, I, I just want to know what this passage means. Yeah. I want to know how to apply it to my life, and it, it needs to be infallible. The problem is the interpretation of it isn't infallible, right? Yeah. Like we don't we don't usually, for the most part, we don't disagree on what the Word of God is. We disagree on what it means. And I, I think what to circle back to the beginning of of our discussion is like, well, we we often we waste a lot of time, like really in in that part right there, mm-hmm. in this small little distinction. Um, because we, we haven't actually asked the important questions. It's like, well, how do we resolve? Like whether we're talking about purgatory or worshiping Mary yeah. or baptism, like, what's our authority to resolve this? Um, and usually when I, whenever I've had a, like a, a non-Catholic Christian approach me who believes sola scriptura and they ask me a question about like, where's purgatory in the Bible or tell me, you know, tell me about the Marian dogmas or any of those sorts of things, um, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to share passages, but when they disagree with them and they'll say, well, I don't, I don't see it that way. Usually I'll kind of just frame the question back to them and say, well, where in the Bible does it say that everything has to be found in the written words of the text? Like mm-hmm. is every, is everything that you believe as a Christian found only in the Bible alone? And usually the anticipated answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, we'll start listing off things that I'm sure you know, there's tons of things that we believe as Christians that aren't explicitly found in the scriptures, like the two wills of Christ, the divine will and human will, the hypostatic union, even yeah. the Trinity. Yeah. Um, like there, there are so many doctrines and theologies that we believe, but aren't found in the scriptures. And I, and I think when we start asking these questions, it gets them thinking. Um, you know, it's it's yeah. bigger than, than the box that you were talking about, right? Yeah, I love that. Uh, tell me a little bit about the Catholic understanding of authority. I, I feel like that is something that's often um, misrepresented. Uh, you might be probably are familiar with the term sola ecclesia, like they believe the Catholic <laughs> yeah. church is church alone, no scripture, right? Yeah. How do we properly understand that balance? Yeah, and um, yeah, the, the sola ecclesia argument, as much as we, also, we, we receive that many times as Catholics, I'm sure you do in, in criticism of your faith, Catholic faith, but it's 
I, I think it's actually the opposite way around. It's like when each individual Christian is the sole arbiter of truth and interpreting what the scripture means today, isn't that the definition of sola ecclesia? Like, the, mm-hmm. like you become your own authority. Um, what I love about the Catholic tradition is that, um, you know, as you know, like the word of God, we believe it to not just be only the written words of the text mm-hmm. of scripture, but also the sacred tradition, right? Yeah. The, the tradition that was handed down to the apostles. And I don't, I don't think many non-Catholic Christians have a grasp of to what that is, or what that even could be, what that looks yeah. like. But the example that I like to use is like when Moses went up the mountain, the only thing that he came down with was the tablets that had the Ten Commandments written on it. That was the only sacred scripture at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rest of the commands that God gave to Moses to relate to the, the Israelites, to his people, that was still the word of God, even though it didn't yeah. get written down for about a thousand years. And so that's, I mean, that's just one example of like the word of God is was spoken orally. Like we even see examples in the New Testament where Paul says, uh, quotes Jesus, and he says, you know, as Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. And yet we don't see that anywhere spoken by Jesus and accounted for in the Gospels. And mm-hmm. so, like, you have to ask the question, like, was it was it not the word of God until, you know, the book of Acts was, <laughs> was written? Yeah. Like, no, it's ridiculous. The word of God is the word of God, you know, whether it is spoken orally or whether it is written down. And so, you know, the Catholic Church in the document, the church document, Dei Verbum, really clarifies that for us, what the word of God is. And not only that, but also that it's like describes it like a stool with three legs that we have sacred uh, scripture. Uh, we have sacred tradition, mm-hmm. but we also have the magisterium, which is just a big fancy word for teaching office, which mm-hmm. is the authority given to the apostles and to yeah. the successors. Um, and we see that exercised in the new Testament, all over the place. But you know, solo ecclesia would be like, you just have one voice telling you uh, what, what the truth of the matter is disregarding all the other three whereas the catholic church leans on these three and Mm -hmm. we we uphold as you know the scriptures say the church is the pillar and support of truth and that's the role of the church the magisterium is just to to lift up the word of god to uphold it you know it's interesting i find too um that i i don't know how how often people think of it this way too but uh the the sense of the word of god having multiple multiple uh, titles and and kind of attributions right um I th- I'm pretty sure it's in the Catechism. I was trying to look it up real quick, but I just jogging my memory of uh, stating that we are a people of the Word, right? And the Word isn't just the written Word, right? But we're a people of the Word that mm-hmm. is the Word made flesh, right? We're a people of mm. Jesus. And so yeah. uh, do you find oftentimes through throughout Scripture this use of the word when it's 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 mentioned it goes beyond just its use of uh, meaning the written word things that were written down um i i'm not too sure like i i i've definitely heard it brought up in arguments yeah. of usually um said in sort of a condescending way it's like well <laughs> You know, I follow the word and the word is Jesus. And and so this is the way that it is. My interpretation must yeah, be correct. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, and but I, I love how the, like the depth of what that implies and what it means, yeah. like the reality of the word, like in the beginning of the Gospel of John, like in the beginning was the word mm-hmm. and the word was with God and the word was God. Word and then it goes God. on to say the, the word became flesh. It's like, boom, like yeah. Jesus, the word became flesh yeah. and like. That reality, and then also when we receive him in the Eucharist, we are consuming the word. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of gives like a whole different connotation to 
that sacrament and the importance of mm-hmm. the Word of God, both in Scripture and in tradition, but also how we receive it in the Eucharist. And so, yeah, it's profound. Yeah, I love it. And that's that's part of the depth, too, that I just really get a kick out of <laughs> when it comes yeah. to it. You know, I was looking up, uh, too, just kind of referencing back to the Catechism, just getting back to that that sense of Scripture, of interpretation— and one mm. of the, you know, you have that great Catholic both and, right? Rather than this either or, it's it's either this or that. You see often in non-Catholic circles, um, the Catholic sense has understands that there's these multiple senses. You take like Origen in the fourth century talking about the allegorical sense of Scripture, and there there were four different kind of iterations that you can draw from it, which kind of speaks to like when you read a scripture multiple times through your life, you see different things emerge, right? And so the Catechism says this, according to ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter being subdivided into the allegorical, moral, and analogical senses. The profound concordance of the four sentence guarantees all its richness to the living reading of the scripture and the church. And so I, those four senses, I think, sometimes are so often missed, and they're just usurped by this desire for it to be this literal thing, this literal mm-hmm. sense, and it goes so much deeper there. Um, and I think that's something that can be brought out in conversation, too. Um, so I'm kind of curious. Well, your, then, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Y- yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, to piggyback on what you're saying, you know, the one example that comes to mind is the creation account. Yeah. And mm-hmm. to be honest... Full disclosure, like, I'm not sure what I think of the creation account mm-hmm. as far as it being six literal days or if it was like poetically describing a reality that took place yeah. over a, a longer duration. Like, I don't I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm not too sure. I haven't formulated an opinion one way or another, um, but I definitely see both cases for that. And so you you get sort of more fundamentalist Christians that say, no, it was six literal days. That's the mm-hmm. only uh, <laughs> it's the only explanation. There was no Big Bang. Um, and then, you know, you have the science of like, well, things have existed for millions of years. So how do we explain that reality is yeah. maybe this this is more poetic or maybe there's a spiritual sense to why God illustrated the creation story and account in this way. And it's sort of that both end I think you're describing. And now there's probably going to be lots of haters on both sides of this opinion. But, um, <laughs> but that's I mean, that's yeah. an example, though, I think. Right. Yeah. No, I think, too. I mean. Full disclosure, man. I don't care about disclosures because we're all on a journey and we're trying to figure this thing out, right? So it, uh, <laughs> yeah. one of the things that's always is fascinating to me when I look at um, when, I, when I look at the scriptural interpretation is just the wide variety of attributes that you see or, or wide variety of perspectives of God that come out of this, right? Mm-hmm. Is if, if like the creation example is a good one because it's like, well, if, if it did happen straight, if everything in scripture is like straightforward, literal, it had to happen in this order at these events, we have to be able to explain this rather mm-hmm. than scripture highlighting and illuminating um, the truth that's in the world. Because if, if God is consistent in his nature and he is truth, he's anything that we find that is objectively true, like we know that it can't be in contradiction to God. That's why I always... The first time I heard about people who feel that dinosaur bones were put in the ground to fool us, like I just had to laugh because I'm like, <laughs> like it seems pretty, oh pretty logical that that would be there, right? So, but we have this different sense of and perspective almost on on God, like as if we're all. It's almost like it's again putting God in a box. We're almost materializing God into and fashioning him into how we would want to understand him, rather than seeking and diving deeper and seeking him out, trying to understand him in his nature and understanding that 
he's infinite and we're finite and we're never fully going to understand. But over through our life, right. if we're constantly seeking him, he makes himself known in, in different ways, particularly through yeah. scripture too, right? Well, and, and the reality is, is if everything in scripture was literal, then all of these fundamentalist Christians who believe in the six literal days of creation would also be Catholic and be receiving the Eucharist because Jesus says, this is my flesh is true food and my blood <laughs> is true drink in John chapter six, right? And so yeah. like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Um, but and I think that demonstrates the crux of this dilemma is like yeah. we spent so much time arguing without having decided like, well, what's the authority on this issue? Like, how are we, how are we meant yeah. to come to know truth, right? Yeah. And that's, that's, I think people are feeling the tension, the reality of the tension of that. Yeah. Oh man, I have to, I have to share a, a short story. I was, I was dialoguing with one of the senior pastors at, at this church years ago. And as of a conversation, I was going through all this stuff, asking them questions. And I asked them the question, I was like, how do you know when it's metaphor versus literal? And I said, just take, take, and I brought up John 6, referring to the Eucharist account, the Eucharistic account. And I said, I'm reading all the early church fathers, and all of them seem to like unequivocally like take this pretty doggone literally. I said, how come you don't? You know, and I actually brought it up in context because in the middle of the sermon when they were doing communion on Communion Sunday, they, he brought out and he paraphrased the Last Supper account. And I asked him, I said, why did you paraphrase that? <laughs> and, he's, and, he para- and he's like, oh, just for the sake of time. That was the, the, and I said, for the sake of time, I said, he used more syllables than Jesus used in the actual <laughs> account. And uh, so I brought this up to him and I said, how come the early church is kind of recognizing this? And how did Martin Luther get it right when he kind of shot for, or even Zwingli or Calvin shot for more of a symbolic interpretation? And mm-hmm. the answer confounded me. He was like, well, they had a better understanding of the Greek. And I said, they had a better understanding of the Greek 1,500 years removed from the people who actually wrote the Greek? That made no sense to me. And so that was just, Mm -hmm. and I I snidely threw out, well, you know, so we take it symbolically unless, and through that, he said it pretty literally. It seemed like, you know, this is, so it seemed like it is, right? Um, So anyways, why is it so important to the conversation to go anywhere between Catholic and Protestants, the fact that we actually address this particular issue? Well, I think um, we spend, we waste a lot of time versus slinging, right? And we just like, well, like look at an issue like baptism. Mm. And I could be mistaken, but I am not aware of any church father who um, suggests that baptism is purely a symbolic outward act. Like, as far as I know, they are unanimous in Mm. in declaring that baptism has a regenerative effect. Yep. And so, you know, we have that historic account. And we even have passages of Scripture like Acts chapter 2, where uh, Peter says, you know, repent. Like, when they ask him the question, what must we do to be saved? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, is framing the, this is framing the context of what he's talking about. What must we do to be saved? Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, like, so baptism now saves. Like, literally, it says in the Scriptures, baptism now saves you. Just like... The ark saved Noah and his family. Mm-hmm. Baptism now saves you. And so how can you have these words of Scripture that literally say um, what, what we believe? We have a historical account of the church fathers that were unanimous at yeah. it. And then, and then decide that we're going to believe the opposite? <laughs> I, I think it's like I think it's weird and it's sort yeah. of funny. And so, um, but without an established authority, then there's no, there's no sure way to know truth. Right. Like if we if God gave us the scriptures, the sacred scriptures, and uh, he wants for us to know 
who he is and the truth is the reality of his truth. Um, but we have no sure way to know it. Then it's a cruel joke. Yeah. Like that God would have played on humanity. Like if we can't know what truth is, then all of this is kind of for nothing. And what's mm-hmm. like, what's the point if we're all going to get it wrong anyways? And I think, I know, I mean, the passage of scripture that comes to mind for me, yeah. I think it's second Peter, you know, it's like the no prophecy of scripture is of one's own interpretation. Yeah. And I personally, I don't see how, whether you believe in solo or sola scripture, I don't see how either of those uh, teachings escapes that reality that at the end of the day, you have to either be your own arbiter of truth mm-hmm. or become your own pope, which is the very argument that a lot of Protestant communities have against the Catholic Church. It's like, how, yeah. how dare we proclaim what truth is when that's actually what why Jesus established the church in the first place. You know, and yeah. Peter echoed those words that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And 267 popes later, our current Pope Francis is still echoing that that reality that Jesus yeah. is the Messiah. Um, that, like it was the church that was given the authority to do this. And actually, I don't know, like, I, I don't want to talk too much, but like the example to me that comes to mind from scripture mm-hmm. is Acts chapter 15. Yeah. It's a dead ringer. It's like, the people, uh, the first council of Jerusalem, people were saying, mm-hmm. if you wanted to be a Christian, you needed to become a Jew first. You needed to be circumcised. Here's the problem. Scripture is completely silent on yeah. that. There, there was no biblical, there was no scriptural evidence to resolve the dispute. And so what did they do? Mm-hmm. The apostles and the presbyters came together in a council and they declared the decree by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then they sent out messengers to all the surrounding churches so that everyone yeah. would know the decree that was binding on the whole church. And like, that's the model that the Catholic Church has used for 2,000 years, is yeah. that we have sacred scripture to guide us. We have the living sacred tradition of the church, but we also have the church itself, the magisterium, to lead us and to guide us to mm-hmm. uphold the word of God. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think the uh, the line hook and sinker here, too, uh, is it, for me, it was like when you look at the early church and you look at the veracity with which they would speak about this lineage of the popes, the successors of Peter. It was It was like... For the first pre-Nicene, you know, the pre-Nicene fathers, before the Council of Nicaea, like you have starting all the way back with like Polycarp and Clement of Rome, and you have these figures, and I even brought it up to one of the pastors I was dialoguing with years ago, and I said, why does it seem like every single one of these guys has to, they, they feel the need to list out who succeeded who? Why, mm-hmm. why would they feel that was necessary and it, it brought yeah. it all, you know, one of the things that brought it home to me, too, is when I, I visited the Vatican a number of years ago, and right there on smack dab on the outside of the door, you see, just see this, you know, every pope's name listed out yep. on a big plaque with the dates that they were pope. And uh, that's me, it was like, man, here it is. This is the, the unbroken chain of successors yep. through all the fault, through all the, all the challenges, all the political stuff, all the, everything going on in the world, this rang true and you could know objectively definitively not because of social media not because of right. of the internet but because yeah. when you talked to somebody and you wanted to find out where christ's church was you knew who was ordained by who because of this lineage and it, they felt the need to document it that was always yeah. really really powerful to me well and like and to piggyback on that is like if if you were a christian living in 60 a.d yeah. and you wanted to know 
whether I should be circumcised or, you know, if he wanted to know like how to be saved or whatever the question is, well, you didn't have half of the New Testament wasn't even written yet. Mm-hmm. And so what, what did they do? It's like, well, what did the what did the apostles give us? Like and they would yeah. compare any particular teaching or any heresy that would arise against, well, what's the living tradition of the apostles, even if it's not written down yet? And that's actually how we came to have the scriptures yeah. to determine which which books are inspired and which ones are not. Is like, well, which ones are in line with the tradition handed to us from the apostles? I mean, mm-hmm. like, and to, I mean, when anybody asks me, really the whole crux of this, if, you, if you're really yeah. looking to get someone to understand why sola scriptura is... Uh, unbiblical and uh, and why it's unreasonable. Uh, there's there's one really easy way to do it, and it's just to say like, well, if you believe everything um, as a Christian comes from the Bible alone, uh, you know, usually they'll say, well, show me one essential teaching that's not found in the Bible. Okay, <laughs> the list of books that make up the Bible, right? Sure, like, yeah. where where does where is that? The canon isn't in there, and so you're following. Um, you're, you're leaning on tradition and history to tell you to go by the Bible alone. And that's like, it's unreasonable. Um, and so now this is maybe a little yeah. bit of a flippant way to, to describe it, but it's true, isn't it? It's like the, when, when we like open the, the box up a little bit, we kind of take that 10,000 foot view. I think it allows people to just understand um, the, this, what the dilemma is and how to move forward in it. And if the the list of books is just one example, like well, what are the other things? And yeah. um, and I don't know, maybe it opens people's eyes and hearts a little bit to um, to absorb the possibility that maybe there is an a, an authority that upholds yeah. the word of God. And what is that? You know, yeah. what does that look like? I love that. Right. Well, Chris, in your experience, just to kind of wrap things up with a nice bow here, you mentioned some good uh, questions for people to ponder and things to open up the discussion a little bit further from the Catholic side. From your perspective, mm-hmm. what's the best way for both sides to approach this particular topic in, in discussion with each other? Mm. Well, first, I would say in charity and in virtue. <laughs> That's always a good thing, especially like usually these discussions. I mean, if they're happening on social media, sometimes I've seen them be extremely fruitful. Praise God. Most of the time they're not. Mm. Um, and so if these discussions are happening like in families or between friends like we, like sometimes this is a, these are lifelong discussions that happen. Like I have family members and friends that I I started a discussion on a particular theological thing ten years ago, and they're still not done yet. Yeah. <laughs> like, but but over the course of time, we've kind of revisited it, come back and ask more questions. Like, well, what do you mean by this? And like, when you say this, what does that? What are you implying? And like yeah. like a discussion is is something that y- you want to continue. You want to grow deeper. And if we um, if we use really hostile language um, and, and we're, we're demeaning and condescending, then that's kind of contrary to the goal that we're trying to achieve in the first place. So I would say the first thing is, yeah, like let's let's be virtuous. Uh, let's be charitable. The second thing I, w- I would suggest is like really understand what people are asking mm-hmm. or what they're what they're implying. Like understand what the argument is. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of times. Uh, I'm sure you've seen this on on Facebook, on on YouTube, on social media. It's like people will start with why Catholics worship Mary and then they'll get onto purgatory and they'll get onto the antipope and like all this other stuff. Like you'll see, you look at these threads and I'm like, oh my goodness, like this, they're not talking about anything anymore. Um, But when we, if we truly want to understand, and I believe, I love, appreciate what you said, you know, like 
like I think everyone can learn something. Even we don't have to agree with their position, but we can we can learn why they put so much emphasis and so much weight behind why they believe it. And that might actually help us grow in our understanding of our own position or being able to better give them evidence that they might find credible for it. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. when people when people are uh, are maybe they're wondering about the existence of God. You know, it's like we could be arguing, you know, the five ways of Thomas Aquinas, but um, they might not be getting stuck on that stuff. It might be more of an emotional thing for them. And so yeah. let's meet them where they're at. Let's understand mm-hmm. like what the resistance, what the argument actually is so that we can address it and then do that with charity. Yeah. And ask, ask God to help us. Yes. Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Well, Chris, this has been awesome. Really insightful. Love your energy. Love your passion. Love your love for, for the Lord and, and the direction that you guys are going. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. For everybody who might be uh, wondering, Chris, where can they find out more about you and everything you're doing? Sure. Well, I started a new community on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Chris Bray, where I'm posting videos and apologetics and music and all kinds of faith resources for people that my hope and my goal is to be able to provide that for free for people that actually need it and are looking and are seeking. And um, and so the community is built there and also on my website, chrisbraymusic.com. I love it. Well, thanks again, Chris. God bless you and your family. Appreciate you, man. Thank you, you too. Awesome. For everybody listening, wherever you might be listening at, definitely hit that like button and pound that subscribe button like you mean it so you can continue to get more of this awesome content from the Practical Theism channel. Ring that bell so you get notifications. Again, we're pumping out the podcast every two weeks. we got some awesome guests lined up. Really excited to share that with you. And if you're listening on iTunes, definitely leave us a review so we can continue to get this podcast in front of more people. From all of us here at the Practical Theism Podcast, we'll talk to you soon.